Thank you, Devin. Well, we're excited about uh, being an opportunity to, to worship together and to look at God's Word and see what it has to say to us. And if you have the outline this morning, you might turn to it, and you'll note the title of it is Totally Surprised. It's interesting when you look at the, the teaching ministry of Jesus, and sometimes we, we forget Jesus, uh, probably His main activity when He was here. We know that He did the miracles, He did the miraculous, that He healed people, that He lived a life in which people were just um, struck by how righteous and kind and gentle he was with people in need. But his probably his main role was as a teacher. In fact, many times those who were trying to identify just who he really was, they would call him rabbi. And it says that when he preached or when he taught, that people were amazed. Another way you could say it, that not only were they amazed, and they, that became early in his ministry, when he, even when he was age 12 and went in the temple, and they were amazed he was confounding all those who were older in the rabbis uh, in the temple. But they were amazed throughout his teaching ministry. And you could also say they were surprised. They, they, in fact, you could put an attitude that they were totally surprised at what he said. One, because of the authority by which he said it. They were, they were well aware that people liked to speak and liked to talk and and so they heard teachers all the time. But when Jesus spoke, everyone listened. Kind of the E.F. Hutton of the religious cycle, circles is that when he spoke, people just, they had to hear what he had to say. But not only did they, had, they wanted to hear what he had to say, sometimes they were surprised not only by how he said it, by, but also by what he said. And, and we're going to see that this morning when Jesus tells a story. And, and as he tells a story, almost everything he said in the story struck people by surprise. Um, I know Warren's one of his favorite uh, writers is C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis says, and in, in commenting on this particular passage, he says, as you look at this particular passage, one of the things you need to remember is that your eyes never come across a person in, in which that person does not have extreme value to God. And not only extreme value to God, you need to recognize is that sometimes you look at people and you kind of discount them because you don't think they're worth a whole lot, but they're, they're not only of such great value and worth is that they also are immortal. Simply put this way is everybody you see is going to last forever. The question is, where are they going to spin forever? Where are they going to spin eternity? And, and when Jesus was speaking, just like speakers today, sometimes when he would speak, that people would listen, but sometimes they didn't quite get it. Have you ever been in those kind of situations? People are talking, you're trying to listen, but you have no idea what they're really saying. Or if you know what they're saying, you just don't agree with it, and so you stop listening. And so that was kind of the picture of Jesus, particularly as he, he dealt with people that were, were the ones you would think would be listening. It was the religious people. And so they weren't listening to the propositional statements he was making, so he decided to tell them stories. Everybody likes a good story. And so just recently in the account in the Gospel of Luke, he, he told three stories in rapid fashion. He told a story about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. And in that story, he wanted to get across very simple truth. In fact, many of the stories that Jesus spoke, he spoke in the parables. He, he wasn't really trying to give multiple points in a, in a story. He's, I, I got a major point. And the major point was treated three times in the story, the lost son, the lost coin, and the, the lost sheep. And, and this was the story, is that as you look at people or things being lost and found, this is a picture of heaven. And, and when a lost life is found... What happens in heaven is a, is, a, is a celebrative party breaks out. 
And, and God is more filled with joy at, in all of heaven when one person turns and puts their faith in Him. And, and yet as He told that story, they, they listened to it, but they didn't quite get it. And so then he, then he began to chide them a little bit, the religious people. And He said, I, I want you to understand that, that, that if you don't understand the little things in life, then you're not going to understand the big things. Or to put it this way, if, if I can't trust you with little things, and what He was considering little there was money, why, why should I trust you with things that matter for eternity? And he also went on and said, if, if you don't understand what life is, and particularly what family life is, and how important is, it is, how can you understand God's family, and what it means to be a part of God's family, and how important that is? And, and then he turns and tells a story in which, in the plainest of ways, in the clearest of ways, he, he, he talks about what's going to happen in the future, and who's going to get in on it, and who's not going to get in on it. And the reality, most of the time, when the religious people heard Jesus spoke, they thought it was for somebody else and not for them. Or if it did apply to them, then Jesus must be wrong. And so Jesus tells a story, and literally what he's trying to do, I'm trying to scare the hell out of you. I want you to understand how, how critically important this is to, to know where your future is going to be. You know, in America, it's interesting. They, they've done some surveys, and they ask Americans, do you believe in heaven? And Depending upon who does the, the survey and when they've done it, they'll say between 87 and 92% of Americans believe there's a place called heaven. Now, they ask them the opposite question. So, well, how many, how many believe in hell? There are not quite a few people, not as many people believe in hell. But they have asked the question about the people who believe in heaven and said, uh, are you going there? And the vast, vast majority of the people who believe in heaven think they're going to get there. And then when they did ask the question of the people who do believe in hell, they asked, do you think you're going there? And, they asked, and that question, the response back was, no, I know I'm not going there. And all I can say is if Jesus had done that with the people who are listening here, they probably would have said, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. Or if I do believe in hell, I know I'm not going there. And so Jesus tells this story, and it totally surprises him about what happens. And so what I want to do is two, I want to do two things this morning. I, I, want to, I want to talk about what the story means or make some simple observation about what they were surprised about, in fact, what we could be surprised about. And, and then I want to answer, so what? So how could you change the story for anybody? And we'll try to see that this morning. What were they surprised by? Look, look at Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And he begins the story this way. He says, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. Now, in one sense, this wouldn't surprise us because we would say, well, who are the happiest people in the world? The people are the happiest people in the world. The people who have the, the most in this world. You know, the people with the most toys are the people who win. But for, for people in settings like this, sometimes we realize, okay, what, what, what people have is not necessarily an indicator of, of what really is happening in their life. They, they can have a lot of things but not be very happy. But when Jesus tells this story, what surprises us is this, how happy some people are who might not deserve it. And sometimes we look at this. We'll look at people who are very prosperous, and, and maybe we look at how they got what they, they got, and we're saying, that's not right. How did they get all those things? And after we realize how we get, they got all those things, we look at how, how happy they are with the things they have, and we think, well, that can't be fair. Why would God allow certain people to have a lot of things in their life being so much better than people who don't have it? And, and the rich man, and this is kind of the spoiler alert for this particular story. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to read the story, is, is this guy doesn't turn out too right. And when you look back at this story, you say, well, wait a minute, this is not right. It says he was joyous. 
He was, having, he was living the good life. Makes sense on one level, but doesn't make sense on the other level because, you know, only, only good people should be happy according to God's plan, uh, program. And yet there are people in this world who, who don't have any idea what it means to have a relationship with God. And they, on the outside, they, they look like things are going good on the inside, but maybe we need to look a little closer. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular poem by Edward Robinson. And it was made kind of famous by Simon and Garfunkel a few years back. And it's a story about Richard Corey. And here's how the story went. They say that Richard Corey owns one half of this whole town. With political connections, it spread his wealth around. Born into society, a banker's only child, he had something a man could want, power, grace, and style. But I work in the factory. This is a commentary. This is the person in the story that doesn't experience what Richard Corey has. And I, I curse the life I'm living. And I curse my poverty, and I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, or I wish I could be, Richard Corey. The papers print his picture almost everywhere he goes. Richard Corey at the opera, Richard Corey at a show. And the rumor of his parties and the orgies on his yacht, oh, he surely must be happy with everything he's got. But I work in his factory, and I curse the life I'm living, and I curse my poverty, and I wish that I could be, oh, I wish that I could be, couldn't I just be Richard Corey? He freely gave to charity. He had the common touch. And they were grateful for his patronage and thanked him very much. So my mind was filled with wonder when the evening headlines read, Richard Corey went home last night and put a bullet through his head. Here was a person who seemed like he had everything, and he looked on the outside like he was filled with happiness and joy on the inside. But the reality, the longer his life played out, he saw the futility of a life lived without a connection with real purpose and a plan, and he, he took his own life. And as we look at this rich man, and we're not going to see a man who took his own life, but we're going to see this man who it seemed like he had everything, but in the end he really had nothing. And so sometimes though we're surprised by the happiness of some people who, who live a certain lifestyle, and it looks good on the outside, but it's really not as good as we think it is. Because all you have to do is know what's really going on, on the inside. It's like, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll refrain from singing it. You know that song about the tears of a clown? You know, he, that clown, was he or she looks so happy on the outside, making everybody laugh, but on the inside, there's, there's weeping. And so sometimes when we're surprised by how happy some people are on the outside, and there are some good things that you can get when you have a lot, but it's only for a time. And then on the other side, and in fact, maybe for some of us, it, we would struggle with this even more as we go on in the story, the description of the, the main characters. And it says in verse 20, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. It's interesting, that, that whole phrase, uh, the man that was laid at the gate, and this is the gate of the city, and you have the idea somehow that someone graciously brought this person in need and, and provided a, a place of rest at the, at the entrance of the city. And you realize the idea of laid has the idea of almost just thrown out. And there was no other place to go, and so he was just, he was just put in a position somewhere near the city. And, and you looked at the description of his body. He was not dressed in fine clothing. In that day, purple clothing was, was the... Was the 
was the style of the day and the reason it was so stylish is because it was so difficult to, to obtain any clothing that was dyed purple. It came from um, Persia and, and within that there were the snails that you had to extract that particular color and it was so expensive to get that color that only a few people had it. And he was, he was dressed better on the inside, the linen on the inside rather than his outer garment and the poor man, Lazarus, had, had nothing. And for many, it was so surprising because if you look at the name Lazarus, in many days, in many ways, the, the, name, the names that you had would portray something that was true about yourself. The, 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 the name Lazarus has the idea of being helped by God. It was almost a mocking of what it meant to really know God because how could you say he's helped by God when he has absolutely nothing and what he does have is his, 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 his health is deteriorated to the point where he's covered with sores. And, and no one can touch him other than a dog who would just want to lick what's oozing from that, that body so ulcerated by the pain that he's experiencing. And, and let's be honest, sometimes we're surprised by why does God seem to bless some people and not bless others? And we're thinking about the people he doesn't bless and we say, well, I, I thought that person really believed in God and trusted God and he was loyal to God and Look what's happening. And maybe you're experiencing that time. So God, God, okay, I've, I've, I've learned the lessons you want to teach me. Now can you get me, make me better? And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And, and one of the things we know about Lazarus, unlike the rich man who later on is going to have many words to say, Lazarus never complains in the story. He, he never shakes his fist at God and said, God. And, and even when we look at Job, Job came back and, and yelled at God and complained to God and and yet, this poor man never complained to God. And the unhappiness that was shown on the outside, there was some kind of happiness on the inside because he trusted his God. But the story goes on, and again, it's totally surprising when you look at the details. And it says, And a poor man named Lazarus was covered with sores, and we read that. But then it goes on in verse 22 and says this, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And so we're surprised by how happy some people are who we think might not deserve it. We're surprised how some people never complain and how does God allow them to have that kind of plight in their life. But here we're surprised how the reality of death is experienced by everyone. And, and now the story becomes one in which people are struggling with what Jesus is having to say. Because it doesn't appear there's going to be a happy ending because you'd rather not think about death. Isn't that true? There isn't a whole lot of conversation around the table. Let's talk about when we're going to die. Right? You just don't carry on those kind of conversations. And often when I'm participating in memorial services or funeral services, I'll, I'll make a statement like this. We think more about life at death than any other time in life. Isn't that true? Whether it's your upcoming death or someone you care about, and when they die, you begin to realize life's not going to last forever. It's interesting when I had a little my, my little accident that I shared with you. Okay, it was interesting. I, I, was, I was going through it pretty well until I saw the reaction of my family. You know, that, that, that kind of put a shocker to me, you know. Because you, you begin to realize, they realize, you know, life doesn't last forever on this planet until God's full plan comes. But you realize that you, we're not in control of everything. Have you realized that? I mean, I'd, I'd rather be, in, well, maybe not everything, but there are a few things I like to be more in control of than I am. But you realize you can't control things that are important. And, and one of the things, we're, we're not going to be able to control that, that day when this is the last day here. 
And when they both died, the reality of death came home to each one of them. And then the story goes on. Okay, and, and by the way, if you're wondering about Abraham's bosom, you know, what's, what's the idea there is that Abraham's bosom was an expression to the Jewish people that this is now the place where the friends of God are. You know, they're different, they're different labels for certain characters in the Bible that have a particular type of relationship with God. David, even though he struggled with sin, and is anybody out there who doesn't struggle with sin? <laughs> and said so David was a man after God's own heart. Abraham is known as the friend of God. Now, if you want to, in your own heart's mind, be in that place in which is the better place to be, I, I want to be in the place where the people who are the friends of God are. Would you agree with that? And, and so as Lazarus and the rich man are being described of where their destiny is, the poor man who seemed to have nothing now is in the presence of where you want to be. He's in the place of Abraham's bosom, which is just a description of heaven being a place where God's friends are. But the story continues. As we think about being surprised about the reality of death is going to be experienced by everyone, we can be surprised how where you will be is more important than where you are. Look at verse 23. In Hades, and Hades is that word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's often sometimes described as Sheol in the Old Testament. And, and it's a place in which the Bible describes where, where, where are the dead residing in when they're not in the presence of God. Uh, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those who know Him. The, the Bible tells us that when Jesus was on the cross and He turned the one who turned to Him in faith, He said, today you will be with me where? In paradise. Where's the rest of the, the population that haven't put their trust in the living God? We're in a place called Hades, and you can describe that as hell. It's, it's not the full expression of that place of judgment, but it's the expression of what it is right now. And, and this is where one of the main characters, there's only two here, the poor man and the rich man, he finds himself there. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And again, this is a description of hell. It's not a place of, of annihilation. And I guess you wouldn't have a place of annihilation. Other than that would be the place where it happens. This is a place in which a person is conscious. Conscious being apart from the place where the presence of God is. And he's in torment. He, he's, he's suffering. The Bible describes it, and Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else could imagine. He said, you know, hell's going to be a place where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you cease to exist, there wouldn't be any weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's that place where the worm does not die, in which it'll be eternal. It's a place in which there's fiery torment, in which a literal fire or just the fire of pain apart from the presence of God. The Bible describes hell as a place, as a place in which the judgment of God is upon those who've rejected his free offer of life with him. And so the rich man describes his experience in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being tor in, in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now what's interesting about this, there's so many interesting things you could just take by way of, of sub-points. 
when he cries out, he does not cry out somehow communicating that you made a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. He recognizes that he needs mercy because what he's experiencing is that which he does deserve, which is the punishment of God. And, and he, he knows he can't get out of here, but somehow can you lessen my judgment? He cries out. Can, can you somehow bring Lazarus to soothe me, just cool off the torment I'm going through? But Abraham said, child, which is an expression saying, look at You've always been in that child state which you needed to be a person who realized you need to learn. Isn't that that true? When a child acts like a child, the child realizes that somehow people are bigger and smarter than they are. Have you come to that realization? And I need to learn from the people who are in my family or at my school or whatever I mean. He said, look, you've always been a child and you need to learn this. You didn't learn it then, but let me just tell you now, this this is the statement of your reality. Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. See, you need to realize, as this story plainly portrays it, how where you, how where you, are, how where you will be is more important than where you are. The rich man had everything going for him, at least it appears so in, in the story. He was like Richard, Richard Corey. I mean, the papers had his face in the, in the news. He, he was the one everyone looked to and admired. He was the one who, who appeared to have everything going for him. But the reality, compared to the one who had nothing, he ought to be the man most pitied. And so as we think about what life is really essentially about, it's knowing what's really important. Isn't that true? If you don't know what's really important, you can you can go down the wrong direction really fast. And what happened here is this was the God of the rich man. Everything apart from the plan of God for his life. And he said, you, you thought you had it here, but you really, you had nothing compared to what's going to last for eternity. So we'll be surprised. And this man was. He was surprised to be in the place he was because he didn't recognize that where you will be is more important than where you are. He thought he had it all. And, and then the story continually in verse 26, it says this, And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Mark Twain I never. I read this years, dec- well, multiple decades ago now, and it, I read it once, and I, I'll never forget. He says, "You know, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bothers me; it's the things in the Bible I do understand." Now, I don't know how else you can interpret this. Whether it's in the New Testament, it's the Greek; in the Old Testament, it's uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, and you can know the original languages. But this is pretty plain. Now, you don't have to believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about. What Jesus says, look at. In the future, you're not going to have a second chance because your destination will be determined. It, 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 is, it is made permanent by the choices you make today. And, and there's no one's going to have the opportunity to go from one place to the other place. Now, you don't have to believe it, but you cannot say, I don't understand it. The choices you make today will make permanent 
your future. And you can put in the positive and the negative. That's what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a good message, right? And in case you don't get it in the positive, let me put it this way. No one will come to the Father but through me. And there's all kinds of, even within the ecclesiastical church world, where, where people will, will try to change the message to make it more user-friendly, if you want to say it. And there are those who have invented a place called purgatory. And purgatory is that place somehow where people are deposited and, and, and they have the opportunity to, to change their opinion, you know, change their mind, to, to make a new decision and, and say, okay, now I, I've learned my lesson, now I'm going. And, and God is saying no. No one gets to, to jump from one chasm to the other, go from hell to heaven. And this is a message in which we don't delight in the sense, I, you know, I, I'm happy that people don't get a second chance after this life. But the truth is the truth. The choices we make now will make permanent our future. And then he concludes the story, which is, which is so plain and and, and depending upon how you look at, at good news and bad news, you know, if you, if you hear the good news, that can be the motivation to follow after. If you hear the bad news, that could also be the motivation to say, I, I don't want to go down that path. I want to go on the other alternative. And, and warnings can be the, the best way at times to, to motivate people to, to make the right choice. You know, if you were in Hawaii and all of a sudden the lava began to flow, w- would you want to know before you got in the car that that was happening? It would, it would change your course of direction that day, wouldn't it? And, and God is pleading with people through the words of Jesus. He's saying, look, at, don't go down that path. Don't make permanent what doesn't have to be permanent. Make the right choice now. And then there's the response of the, the rich man. And in this we'll see how everyone has reasons to believe, but are they willing so the response of the rich man says, okay, my, my place is permanent. And verse uh, 27, he says this, and, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, where I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so they may will not also come to this place of torment. So he says, okay, okay, Lazarus doesn't get to speak to me because I made my choice. Well, then send Lazarus, bring him back from the dead, and warn everyone that I care about. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Have you, have, you, have you ever had someone tell you, tell you the truth and you just refuse to believe it? I mean, I've, I've had that many times where I, I just didn't want the truth to be the truth, and so I went down the other path, you know. Um, that's why I've gotten lost so many times in my life, all right? You won't get lost. Oh, yes, I, yeah, I know where I'm going. You know, you, people will tell you the truth, and, and you just don't want to believe it, even though if you stop for a moment, you know, that is pretty convincing. That is pretty persuasive, but that's just not what I want to do. That's not what I want to be. That's not, that's not the course direction of my life at the moment. And, and so in the midst of the story, he said, well, there's got to be a way which will take, 
take the choice out of it. It's got to be convincing. There's no way a person could deny it. Of course, the the irony of this is so powerful. And so look at, even if someone came back from the dead, they won't believe. And, And do we believe that happened? Of course we do. We believe that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Everyone knew Jesus died. Everyone knew that when Jesus was buried, and then the tomb was empty. And then he appeared to a multitude of people over a period of time, 40 days, in which over 500 people saw him at one time, and multiple times people saw Jesus doing a variety of things. And even though they had many reasons to believe, they refused to believe because that's not the path they wanted to go down. Now, as we look at total surprising, all kinds of things that were totally surprising out of the story. I mean, how could, how, could a, how, do, how could a person who has everything really not be truly joyful and happy? Because it's only for a period of time. How, how could a person who walks with God experience such misery? Because this life is not all that there is to life, and there's a life to come. How, how, is, it, how is it that the reality of death is, is just ignored by people? And are, are you prepared for your future? How is it that where we will be is more important than where we are today, and why are people making permanent choices now because they, they, they believe a lie that somehow it will change in the end. And, and really the issue is not can you believe, but are you willing to believe? And, and really what is the message? So, sometimes, sometimes people say, well, this is like, this is just Western religion, you know. Christianity has somehow moved to the West, even though we did, it didn't begin in the West, and there are religions everywhere, and and um, how, how can we condemn people who haven't heard as much as other people have heard? And what, what, really, what really is the message that God has always had for people to be rescued from their condition? And let me just say, it's always been the same message. So, some have more details than others, but the message is available for everyone. And it's, it's always been straightforward. And so what I want to do is just, answer this question. So what is it that people always needed to do so they would not be surprised? There are going to be people surprised when this life is over where, where they end up. And, and God doesn't want anybody to be surprised. The Bible says plainly, whether you believe it or not, it says God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. All should come to Him. He does not delight in the death of any that are wicked. And the message has always been for everyone. What is the message? Well, I, I would put it this way, and this is how I believe the Bible puts it. It all begins with putting your trust in the one true God. Now, if there is God, then that God has to be compared to that which is the true God, and that which is the false God. And idolatry is basically placing anyone or anything up to the level who the true God is. And as the Bible describes that which separates us from God, which is sin, in the very beginning what happened is Adam and Eve decided, I'm going to put my trust not in the true God, but in the false God, which is the evil one who persuaded them to go down the wrong path. God's always calling people to put their trust in the true God. In Genesis chapter 15, 6, it says this very simply. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? 
throughout the Old Testament, from the time when Jesus came and after that, it all began with this. Are you willing to put your trust in the true God? But what if people don't know all the details? Are they putting their trust in what they know is true about the true God? Someone put it this way. It's like, and the Bible describes God as light in whom there's no darkness at all. That everyone who lives has the opportunity to respond to the light that God gives them about himself. But when we, when we say no to the light that God gives us about himself, then, then God, kind of like a dimmer switch, will not give you more light but less light. But if you're willing to, to trust in the light about God, you do know God will give you more light. And as Abraham began with not a whole lot of knowledge about who the true God was, but as he followed him step by step, trusting what he knew about God, God displayed himself profoundly to him, and he put his faith in the true God and was counted to him as righteousness. What does the Bible say in the Old Testament? This is all before Jesus came. What does the Bible say plainly about who the true God is? Isaiah 43, 11 says this, I, even I, the Lord, and the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. Either God is who we claim to be. He is, he is the one true God, and He's the Savior, the rescuer of anyone, or He's not. In Isaiah 45, 22, it says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none other. There, there, are, there are all kinds of gods throughout the world, but there's only one true God. The Bible puts it that plainly. Now, again, it's kind of like Mark Twain. I mean, whether you believe it or not, the Bible says there's only one true God. There is no other. Not meaning there aren't others who claim to be God, but there's only one true God. And in Romans 1, 16 through 21, the Bible describes this about all of us as we begin in a place where we are apart from God and decide whether we're going to come to faith in God. Paul says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about who God is, because it's the power of God for salvation, for relationship to everyone who believes. But he says, you know, as you, as you look at the plight of, of people, people are like this. They, they hear the truth and they suppress the truth. I don't want to hear it. I, I don't want to hear you tell me I'm going to get lost if I go, you know, if I go hiking on my, on my own. I, I know better. I'm not going to go down. But, you know, I can go down the wrong path. And, I don't want to hear the truth. So we suppress the truth. But if you hear the truth and respond to the truth, then God gives more truth. How does God display who He is? The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the Bible says in natural revelation, as we look around us, anyone who is, who is willing to be open to the truth realizes this didn't happen by chance. There had to be a creator. There had to be a person who, who put this all by design in its intricate ways. There has to be a creator God. And so we know that there is a God. And as we look at natural revelation, then we know special revelation, which special revelation means simply that, that God reveals himself. We know that God is powerful and almighty, and he is the creator of beauty. And then in his, in his intervention into history, we know that he's a personal God, a God that loves us and cares for us, has a plan for us, wants to rescue us from his, our condition, which is in rebellion against him. He's gracious and merciful. And, and the more that we follow up after the God we do know, God will reveal more about himself. And when we put our trust in him, then he'll reveal himself completely. 
And the Bible says that everyone is without excuse. Which simply means if you reject the light you have, then God will give you no more light and there will be a kind of judgment. But his desire is for you to come to him. So what is the message then and now is to believe in the one, put your trust in the one true God. But secondly, this is also what's true. You need to repent or turn from your sins, believing in God's gracious forgiveness. So you got to get God right. Who is the one and only true God? But then you got got to get yourself right. Okay, <laughs> what kind of a person am I? Well, you know, sometimes we can have too high a view of ourselves. Sometimes we can have too low a view of ourselves in terms of self-image, self-esteem, self-worth, all those kind of things. But you need to realize that at the heart of who we are, we're in rebellion against God. And it doesn't mean that we're always shaking an angry fist at God, but the reality is we want, to, we want to control our life. We want to do what we think is right. And the Bible describes that as sin. The word sin means to, to miss the mark. It means to, to break God's commandments. It means to go your way rather than God's way. And the Bible says if you're going to become right with me, then you've got to deal with the dirt in your life before you can get the light that I can give you in your life. And you need to realize that when you, just in any kind of relationship, when, when you've messed up with somebody else, that, that mess has to be cleaned up or that relationship will not be right. And, and Jesus came to, to clean up that mess, but you've got to be willing to receive his gracious forgiveness. And you'll never be forgiven unless you admit that you need to be forgiven. You'll never deal with your sin until you admit you have sin. And so that's always been the message of God to us, that we need to turn from our sin and turn to Him. There's a story in, in Jonah. Jonah is the fish story in the Bible, in which Jonah, we usually know the story by Jonah. You know, he, he ran from God, and, and in judgment, God had him swallowed by a big fish, and people call it a whale, and then he gets spit up on the shore, and, and then we kind of forget what the whole message was. The message was is Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And what he didn't want to do, he didn't want to give the message, which is almost nonsensical to us, you don't want to tell people that God is loving and gracious and merciful and he's willing to forgive sin for people to turn to him? No, he didn't want to give that message. Why? Because he didn't think the people that the message would be given to deserved to hear that message. They were an evil people. And, and so he only gave part of the message. He said, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The heavy hand of God is going to be upon your life. You're going to perish. And the Ninevites... Somehow God grabbed their heart and they believed the light that was given to them. And, and this is the response to them in Jonah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Who knows God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And of course, we need to realize that, that God has all kinds of attributes. God is loving, gracious, and merciful, but God is also an angry God. And he will bring judgment upon those who, turn, who will not turn from their sin. And the Ninevites... Said, well, maybe God will turn from his anger if we will repent. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God, re- then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. He did not bring judgment upon them because they believed that they were sinners and they needed God's gracious forgiveness. The psalmist has put it this way As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. There's really no such thing as a proud Christian. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. Every Christian realizes that we deserve God's judgment, but because of God's grace and mercy and our turning to Him, we have received His forgiveness. 
We're not better than anybody else. We just receive the forgiveness from God who offers it to those who admit their sin and turn to him. Be gracious to me. Give me what I don't deserve. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So two things we need to do to begin with. One, we need to believe and trust in the one true God. Secondly, we need to recognize that, that we need God. Our sin separates us from him. The things that we do that are wrong, breaking God's commandments, living a self-centered life. I need God to give me what I don't deserve, his forgiveness. Thirdly, we need to realize, well, what is the plan of God? The plan of God has always been this. Know that God's justice is only satisfied by transferring his judgment to a substitute. We, well, I always say when, when someone does wrong, hurts people drastically, there's an, there, there needs to be justice in the land. Every law that's ever been made in any land here on earth throughout history, laws are made because there's a sense within us that justice must be satisfied. A wrong needs to be righted. And, and normally when we mess up, then we, we all realize we got to get the consequences. But God realized we, we can't take the consequences of our actions. So what he does is he transfers our punishment onto a substitute. Now, if I were to summarize the whole Old Testament and the New Testament, you have promises made and promises kept. Or you have truth Illustrated in the Old Testament and truth personified in the New Testament. Every blood sacrifice that was made in the New Testament was a picture of Jesus coming to take on our sin. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, And according to the law, one may also say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Those are pretty harsh words. Without the shedding of blood, there is going to be no forgiveness. And then the Bible also says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity or the sin of us all to fall in him. I remember you know, growing up in the church and hearing the messages or the stories about Jesus. And many times there were phrases used over and over and over again that just didn't make sense to me. I, I, mean, I would even say them and I didn't know what I meant by what I said. You know, Jesus died in my place. And I go, what in the world do you mean by that? Uh, Jesus is the substitute for my sins. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, if you just take a moment, it, it does make sense. Jesus died for my sins. I should have taken, I sh- that, that death that Jesus had on the cross should have been my death. I'm the one who sinned. I should have received the punishment. But Jesus took my punishment. He's the substitute for me. That means he went on the cross where I should have been on the cross. And so we need to realize that how God saves us Old Testament, New Testament, is transferring our judgment for our sin onto a substitute. It was pictured in the Old Testament with all the blood sacrifices, but when Jesus came, he was the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous of God in him. That's the only way our sin, our separation from God, can be satisfied under the the just hand of God. And then finally, what's our response? This can be said in so many different ways, but you can put it this way. Be convinced that your Savior lives and that He paid the penalty for your sins. In Job, it says this in the Old Testament, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last He will take a stand on the earth. Job, 
realizing that he was not perfect, he needed someone to be the one who brought him back in a relationship with God. The Bible says that he was pierced for our transgressions. All of sin came upon him. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says that, that this is a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to many, proving that he actually rose from the dead. So what's the point this morning? We went through a story, kind of a strange story, talking about a rich man and a poor man. One named Lazarus, who said, God is my help, who didn't look like God was up when he was living, but in the end, we could see that he was the winner on the side of eternity. And the one who seemed like he had it all had really nothing. And, and what was the difference? We know nothing about the lifestyle of the poor man. We know very little about the rich man, only that he cared for himself. But what we do know is that what the poor man did is what everyone needs to do. To escape the reality of there's a heaven and there's a hell. And that is putting your trust in the one true God. If there is a God, have you put your trust in the true God? Secondly, as you think, what, why is that so desperately needed? Because we're separated from God because of our sin. And we've got to believe that he, he is the one who can forgive us of our sin. Yeah, thirdly, well, well, how can he do that? Well, it's what he's always done. He, he's to put a substitute where he transfers our judgment that we so justly deserve and puts it on another. And, and Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And then you've got to make a choice. And the choice we make here is the choice that will be made permanent in eternity. Jesus put it this way, the death of Lazarus, I'm the resurrection of the life. He, he who believes in me shall live even, even if he dies. And when we put our faith in Jesus as the, the Redeemer that lives and paid the penalty for our sins, then we have life that will last forever. Where is your faith this morning? Who are you trusting in? It's never changed. People are saved in the Old Testament just like they're saved in the New Testament. It's putting their trust in the true God, believing He's the forgiver of sins, that He puts His sin on another, and, and we must respond in faith. And the more we follow the light that He gives us, the more light He'll give us. And so man is without excuse. We must make a choice. Let's pray together. Father, this is a message for, for everyone. For all those of us who have already made that choice, it's for us to realize this is the most important choice anyone can make, and we pray desperately that people that we care about will make this choice. And Father, the reality of the rich man's story is, is a sobering story because he couldn't choose for his brothers, he couldn't choose for his family, he couldn't choose for anyone else. He could only choose for himself. And the good news that we miss in all this is that Jesus gave this warning not, not, to, not to hurt his hearers and put them in despair, but to rescue them from falling down the wrong path and, and turning to the right path. Father, we want to be passionate as your people, not communicating messages that we feel we're better than somebody else, but that we found the one who rescues us from our own sin. That we... We don't want to go through a day where we're not grateful and 
and thankful for the, the forgiveness that we find in Christ and the, and the life we can now live in Him now, even if we don't experience all the blessings of this life, we experience what you have planned for us in the future. Father, help us to be a people that, number one, decide where is our faith? Who are we putting our trust in for what happens next and, and what happens now as well? And help us to be loving and caring and passionate about the people around us. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.